You're listening to Stage Dives, the flagship podcast by Smack Media. Normally, we break down our favorite bands, artists, rappers, and their concerts that have come into town. Other times, like today, we talk about the entertainment and pop culture worlds. On our website and social media channels, we take care of both daily. Visit us at smackmedia.ca in your domain search, at smackmedia on Instagram, and smack underscore tweets on Twitter. Hey, if you want to read something cool, check out Tom Dez's interview with Wisconsin DIY protege Alligator Orange, plus the bonus episode we recorded for this show. Also, check out Antoinetta's Todorova's piece on the influence of pop punk music in the Balkans and the Soviet Union. Both readables you can find on our website. Today, I've got my partner and co-host Jared here to talk about the ridiculous amount of prestige TV series available on streaming services, along with our favorite needle drops in those shows. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Stage Dives. doing Aaron good good oh you asked back that's nice uh so we're here to talk about the t- this, is, this is an episode that you're probably super I mean if you're more prepared to talk about something than oh this. I'm super pumped you're see yeah <laughs> how many references can we pull on there's so many shows to go through um I, let's let's just take it to the main course here we're going to be talking about tv uh somewhere where Jared and I both live all the time. I believe we're living in an unprecedented time for original content series. What is this? The post-golden age? We're in the post-golden age I now? I don't even know what you call this. This is just like, like we're, we're just getting plowed. Like, like, <laughs> like, like, so, oh, I, I grew up in a time where I'm, I'm a 92. Jared, you're a what? A 90, 98. 98. So you're not that much younger than me, uh, but I don't know if you would have remembered what TV was like when I was growing up. Maybe when you were a little bit younger, when you were growing up, but there were like maybe three big shows on at the same time. You would have like twenty four on on Monday, yep, <laughs> Lost on Thursday or Wednesday, and then fucking I don't know Grey's Anatomy Thursday night. You have your animated shows on Sunday, and everybody's working off the advertising model, and that's it. That's it. That, that's maybe like TV Prison work. Break. There was like a Prison Break in there, or something like that. HBO were doing their thing, right? Uh, there was obviously Soprano Six Feet Under the Wire. We were too young for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are the binge generation, and we had not reached the age to be allowed to watch those shows. Certainly not you. Definitely not. I actually, sorry, finish. Go ahead. No, please. No, I remember uh, I, I said the F word to my mom one time when I was like seven. And she's like, don't say that. Definitely don't say that at school. Or if you do say it at school, I don't know, tell them your mom shows you the Sopranos or something. And I was like, what's the Sopranos, mom? And she's like, shit. Now he's going to want to watch this show. Oh, <laughs> my parents kept Pulp Fiction from me forever. I wasn't allowed. We weren't allowed South Park in the house. It was just like, I guess we certainly weren't allowed to watch Six Feet Under. You know what I mean? Absolutely not. So, so yeah, I, I, like those came later. You'd have to go to Blockbuster and rent five for 20 bucks. That's what my dad and I did with Dexter because we didn't have enough money for Showtime. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my dad was struggling as I was growing up. And what we would do is we would wait for the seasons to come out at Blockbuster. And then yeah. we would rent out the box set. Of- yeah, like like it's... We had we came late to all of those shows, so all we really knew what was going on a weekly episodic on basic cable. I feel like the 2010s Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad, and Mad Men being on television all at the same time, which really showed people what episodic could do. Um, 
by then uh, you could download right there. I believe there was it. Most people had HBO. It was kind of cheaper at that point. They marked it down so more people could watch it. Um, you know, I want to ask you a quick question. Please. Do you ever feel when it comes to television, and I'm not being facetious when I do this, but to quote Sup Tony Soprano himself in the first episode of The Sopranos, do you ever feel like you came in at the end of this like great wave, or do you feel like we're still right in the middle of it? So it's like um, it's like that era of, of of television shows was new Hollywood. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? The Scorseses, the Coppolas. Uh, um, the the Robert Altman's yes. right, Spielberg and Lucas is Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad, sure. <laughs> and they blow it up commercially. And now we're in the '90s with like Linklater, Tarantino, Kevin Smith, and and like they're loud. They're now pulling from that era, but I mean that stuff's really good film work. Like we're getting really good television now. It's just there's so much of it, um, and that really nicely leads me into where we are now with like the, the wars, the streaming wars, like there's Apple, there's Amazon, there's Netflix, there's HBO and there's Disney and they're all competing to get your dollar. Yep. <laughs> and they, by say, I don't know, 2020, I keep hearing it's 2025. I don't know why. I guess that's enough time for them to be maximizing um, their statistics, but they all want your subscriptions. They all want your subscriptions. So they're now bankrolling these massive projects um, with A-list stars, mm -hmm. with high-level directors and high-level writers, um, high concepts, and they're all ten to twelve episodes going on right now. Uh, they know you could you probably have enough room for four for four of these things to make it worth it, and not just have to get cable. Um, so yeah, we mentioned the big dogs. There's also Peacock, Discovery Plus. Yep. Uh, Shutter, Paramount Plus, Paramount Plus. There's Hey You. There's for reality. There's Criterion. What are the essentials? What do you what What do you think you need to have in your house? I mean, it's hard to keep up with it because every once in a while, you know, the old network dinosaur will come around and then slip an Abbott Elementary, and then suddenly it's like you need to get cable back so you can keep up with Abbott Elementary. Mm. But I guess for me, the ones that I need is I need HBO, so I get Crave. Or if we have any American listeners, HBO Max. Right. Um, we do have American listeners, by the way. Okay, well then, yeah, HBO Max is a definite essential. You need your succession. Maybe you need your euphoria. Uh, it depends on who you ask. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, you definitely need that. You definitely, I feel like Apple TV is really becoming a serious contender with mm. not just like, you know, Ted Lasso and Severance, which are getting a lot of good buzz, but also shows like Pachinko. Um, you know, it seems like Apple's really starting to rev up. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Apple, Crave. Netflix. You need Netflix. You need Netflix. Um, Disney Plus. But why? Why do you need Netflix? Because some people would argue. So Aaron, everybody has it. Yeah, that's true. So I want if you want to be part of the water cooler combo, you need it, and it's also just cheap. Mm -hmm. It's not. I think. I think. It, what is it now? Twelve bucks. Yep. That's fucking nothing. And they have so many movies. Pulp Fiction and Goodfellas are on there. Well, I think Netflix's whole model is buying things once they're complete. Like that's why the office is never going to leave Netflix because it's like people are always going to want to watch The Office. Um, but they don't... It seems that their original... What was the last great original Netflix show? BoJack Ooh. Horseman? Like that level of great? Maybe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Uh, what's the one... What's the reality one? Is that Love Island or... Love Island. I know Love is Blind. Maybe not. not is, is it, it Love is Blind? Love is Blind is a huge one. Yeah. And then you've got some 
smaller ones like The Circle. There's a lot of reality television on Netflix, actually. It's, it's, they got a lot of anime on there, too. It's just kind of like a really well-rounded model. I'd also say that once they get games, because it's what they're trying to do, is, is, is Netflix are going for the gaming route, it's over. You think so? Oh, yeah. That's where they're going to be making a lot of money. Here, I want to tell you what's coming out this year. Because it's, it's <laughs> on the note of like oversaturation of content, this is flabbergasting. Mm -hmm. the, amount of t the amount of TV we're going to get, obviously the pandemic is more or less over. So all of these guys, it's like firing off the race, the, the, the running track and field gun. And they're all just racing to get this content out. Um, okay, so this year, here's what's due out. The Mandalorian. Amazing. The Handmaid's Tale. Documentary Now. <laughs> the Crown, Cobra Kai, The Boys. We're supposed to get another season of American Horror Story. Yellow Jackets is due out. The White Lotus, Stranger Things, Rick and Morty, Big Mouth, the reboot for the kids in the hall. We're also, maybe not this year, maybe 2023 or four, we're getting a new season of Curb, a new mm. season of You, more Ted Lasso, Squid Game second season is due out 2024. We get another uh, season of Sex Education, speculated this year, maybe next. New season of Peacemaker, mm. new season of True Detective. This is directed like, by Barry Jenkins. Is Jenkins on? Yeah. This is uh, this is kind of starting to feel like fucking work. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> like, I, and I mean, I'm I'm so I'm so it's so absurd of me to be like, oh, what was the last high quality show on Netflix when it's like they have The Crown and Ozark and like and Oh, they're pumping they're out pumping Squid Game. Like Squid Game was a huge hit. I'm I I'm Squid totally Game. blanking. Billions of dollars. But I, I see I see what you're saying here. It's easy for it to go over your head. I think also like it used to be just HBO who were making shows that were as good and thematic and as sophisticated as movies. But that's the point you're like I, to go to go yeah. on to your point. Like it's like there's so much good like prestige TV. Yeah. That it's hard to keep up with it. At it's this almost point. Like prestige TV isn't even a thing anymore. It's just TV. Everything is this. Everything is this big. And if it's not that big, then what the hell are you doing? Like get the hell out of here. Right. I like it's. Um. We literally have to plow through content. It's a lot of it's a lot of starting shows without finishing them mm -hmm. because if you get to I mean like look at the amount of shows I don't have time to watch all that stuff if I'm not impressed in two episodes I usually ditch it right and that can be a detriment to some of the greatest shows on TV because sometimes it takes a while to get going but you just don't know and you can't take the chance at this point because there's just too much to keep up with so you you started Severance didn't finish it oh no I finished it. Sorry, super pumped. You started oh, super I pumped. Start, yes, I started super pumped, and I got to about the third episode, and it wasn't even bad. I, we're getting back. We're gonna get back. We're to gonna it. get we're back, gonna get back, back to, to it. it. But uh, you, 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 I stopped. But 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 um, you started the dropout. Didn't finish it. Didn't finish it. And, and that's not a bad show. That's not a bad it's show just, at all. It's just like I like I don't. If it's not blowing your mind like Severance or Succession, it's almost like I don't have. 10, 12 hours to finish a show like that. I haven't even caught up on Winning Time yet. I was going to say Winning Time. And Winning Time's fantastic. Winning Time is awesome. And actually, I have Ian coming on the show next week, so we're going to get into that a bit more. I want a basketball head. But um, it's kind of funny how all of the streamers have gone for TV instead of movies, and the economics of it is I might watch a movie, take me two hours to finish a film, mm. maybe two and a half. You want to watch Succession? It takes you 30 hours. Yep. You want to watch Euphoria? 20 hours. Mm -hmm. You want to minus those two bonus episodes, which you guys do can? 18 hours. The Sopranos is 81 hours. Yep. The Wire is 50, 60 hours. You know how much Sopranos and Wire I've watched? It's like gross. I could have finished. I got my master's degree <laughs> with the amount of time. 
Uh, and that's really good news for the streamers to report to their investors in two years. Look how many hours they're spending. Whereas a movie, okay, I'm gonna, you're going to watch Goodfellas 45 times. To, to Probably like, not. Right? In the same year during a pandemic to clear uh, what The Sopranos would take up, right? Um, I remember, and this video isn't I'm really, unfortunately, I don't think it's on YouTube anymore, but it's it was Steve Jobs talking to Charlie Rose about Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And he was saying that, the, like, because he had just invested in Pixar, and he was saying that, the Apple II will last six years, and then a new computer will come and swallow it. I'll have to come up with a new computer because that's where technology moves. And he goes, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Holy moly, this thing's last, these things last 100 years. Mm-hmm. Like a great movie will last 100 years. Do you think uh, TV shows are as forever as movies? You know, I didn't think it for a long time. And then I saw the renaissance that The Sopranos had. And that's when I realized, like, oh, God, this show is timeless. Because there was a period of time mm-hmm. where it felt like The Sopranos was kind of being lost to the annals of time. Yeah. And then the pandemic hit. And suddenly The Sopranos feels like it's bigger than it's ever been. It's permeated meme culture. Michael Imperioli is about to be the star of the next season of The White Lotus. Yeah. Uh, Which is weird. It, it, I'm gonna, he's uh, it's just Christopher to me. I, no, I'm so, I'm so <laughs> excited because I think he is a fantastic actor. And I, I, I feel like we could have used more of him over the past few years. And I'm so happy to see him get a role in such a huge hit of a show mm-hmm. uh, I'm really happy to see that and it wouldn't happen it wouldn't have happened without this whole Sopranos renaissance that's happened and uh, yeah I think at least that show is going to live forever it's going to I mean people still watch I Love Lucy there's no reason why the Sopranos isn't going to have the same kind of longevity the Twilight Zone you know I think the cream of the crop will remain just just on the note of movies uh, of what and what streaming is doing to movies um, Turning Red did not make it into theaters <laughs> no, but it was a huge hit, which is but bizarre. We should be watching that in the theaters. Uh, the Batman is going to be available on HBO Max in, f- like, I think it's like three, four, five days. Mm-hmm. It used to take you four months to get, like, a little bit of a drought, and then it would come out on DVD. Now things are just hitting the streams uh, right uh, the away. The pandemic changed all of that. I mean, it was getting quicker before the pandemic, but now it's like, yeah, you have movies that are turning red 10 years ago. That would have been a... They'd wait till Christmas yeah. to, to, to sell Christmas movies, right? right? Or, or the summer, or for, you know what I mean? But like Batman's, uh, uh, Batman was just in theaters, and yep. now it's going to be on HBO Max because they need to push subscri- subscriptions. Ambulance... Michael Bay action movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal. It's getting awesome reviews. Fucking flopped. Which once makes no sense to me, but that's just the world we live in now. Well, I just, I, I always wondered, did movies get worse? And I realized that it's actually no. I'm stuck at home watching TV mm-hmm. because that's where all the quality is gone. Um, you know, if you look at a list of the top 10 grossing films of the year, um, I like probably haven't even seen two of them sometimes. Mm-hmm. And in like 2004, 2003, I would have seen all of them. I was lining up to go. Has your movie consumption gone down? Absolutely, it's gone down. It's gone way down. And uh, that's kind uh, Sometimes I feel a bit embarrassed because I remember as, er, as early as 2019, I probably had seen every single Oscar film tw- mm. at 2019 because yeah. I was at the theater every fucking week with the Oscars uh, or, uh, and during 2019. And admittedly, 2019 was just a banner year for film. Yeah, you got the Jojo Rabbit Parasite. Uncut Gems. Oh, my or God. Or Uncut Jams. As <laughs> jams. <laughs> jams. But uh, no, it, I, I say that, uh, I say to people often that, thank God 2019 was so good. It felt like the calm before the storm. It felt like the gods knew that we weren't going to be going to the cinema for a while. So they gave us a really good year for film. 
but yeah, I I don't I I I I could probably count on one hand the amount of films that I've gone to see at the theater this year. I did the it was it, I guess the pandemic kind of did a lot to make people stay home and watch television, but like ah man, I I'm I hope the movies come back, and I hope it's not just you know look at Turning Red. Mm-hmm. doesn't even get to theaters. It's just like these, the, the streaming platform is so important to these entertainment companies that they're just saying, no, I, we're going to sell, we're going to do far better if we just make this thing available um, on, a, on a streamer versus in case we get another lockdown. Or you have a film like you and I went to go see everything everywhere all at once yeah, was, last week. Yeah, it was awesome. Literally, like I think we got to the end of that and it was like that was one of the greatest films that you and I had ever seen. And no one is in the fuck, like it wasn't even a sold out theater. I'm, I think that if that movie came out in 2006, it would have pl- destroyed the box office. 100%. Been, and like, now, nah, yeah, it's, now it's, you want metaverse? You can, wa- you can stay home and watch Rick and Morty. Right? <laughs> uh, okay, so in a couple of days, yeah, in a couple of days, we get three really big crime shows. I'm calling it Crime Show Palooza even. We get Better Call Saul. Amazing. A- April 18th. We get Barry, Body, on April 20th, <laughs> April 24th. And then we get the final episodes of Ozark, April 29th. That's just, you're, there's no way you're going to be able to watch Winning Time or any of those shows and finish them. Oh, well, yeah, get- I'm in heaven. I'm in, that's like three <laughs> of my favorite shows on TV, and it's all coming back at the same time on top of Atlanta. <laughs> there's Atlanta too. But like, okay, so are these shows, Better Call Saul, Barry, and Ozark, a bit similar. <laughs> I feel like there's like a thorough line running between these are all different networks. The feel is similar. There's all, I think there's a Coen brothers Fargo influence running through all of that. The, the dark humor, the, I can't believe I'm seeing this mm-hmm. factor in most of it, the anxiety. Uh, how are these shows different? Talk to me here. I mean, Barry, of course there's a Coen brothers influence. Bill Hader has been totally transparent with that. He says that the violence of, Barry has been greatly influenced by No Country for Old Men in the way mm. that it is visceral but unsentimental. Play it straight. Play, play it straight. Play it totally straight. I mean, the first image of the show is just uh, a dead body laying on a bed in grotesque fashion and Barry just kind of washing his hands and coming out and the body's just there. And it really kind of sets the tone for what violence is going to be like on this entire show. Mm-hmm. And also the Murphy's Law quality, which kind of, permeates role of the Coen Brothers filmography. Definite, definite Coen Brother influence there. Better Call Saul has a Coen Brothers influence. Yeah, I mean, technically you could say Breaking Bad has a Better Call Saul influence, or a Coen Brothers influence. All these shows have a comedic talent at the lead of it. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. You have Bob Odenkirk, uh, Bill Hader, and Jason Bateman. Those are basically, they train comedians who are now able to do really uh, effective dramatic work um, they're not sexy. <laughs> they they, like these shows they look- are, but not in a conventional way. Really? They're actually very sexy. Ozark's got some sex appeal. Uh, I would even say Bob Odenkirk is like, I mean, uh, my uh, partner, Ashling, who is on for the Oscars podcast, is right. in love with Bob Odenkirk. Absolutely in love. Like, she would leave me for Bob <laughs> Odenkirk in a heartbeat. And, uh, and she would have no problem with me saying that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so there is sex appeal, but it's a different, it's kind of like a tone kind of like a James Gandolfini-esque sex appeal. It, it's the kind of sex appeal that television creates. Wait, unconventional? Unconventional. You could know these people. These people, you know, are sitting beside you on the bus and you want to get to know them. That kind of sex appeal. That kind of, you know, they, they captivate your interest. 
What show are you most excited for out of those three? Better Call Saul, hundred percent, hundred percent. I, I like, I. It, it's not even a contest. Really? Really? Okay, so that's not a show as that is as popular as maybe you think it should be. I'm not watching it. Um, it's I, Breaking Bad is one of my biggest blind spots. I haven't finished that yet, which is yeah, pretty egregious, I must say. But like even everybody I know has seen Breaking Bad, and not a lot of my friends mm-hmm. are watching Better Call Saul. Seemingly at least caught up on it. Can you make your case for why we should watch it? Well, Better Call Saul was kind of cursed, right? Because it comes, it's a Breaking Bad spinoff right on the coattails of what was one of the most game-changing blockbuster finales to a series that we had ever seen on TV. I didn't know a single person who wasn't watching the series finale uh, the night that it aired. I even saw it. I even saw it. There you I had go. not even seen any episodes and I was watching it. It, it was like going to it was like watching the the Super Bowl. Like you had to <laughs> see it. You had to see it. Even if you hadn't kept up with it, you had to see the series finale of that show. Yes. And Better Call Saul comes and it's very different. Season 1, I'll be the first to admit, it's a bit of a slog. It's a great season of television, but after coming off the high octane pacing of Breaking Bad and you have this very slow character piece that is kind of drowned with uh, you know, what some people would refer, refer to as legalese. Uh, it's it, 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 it's a real, real culture shock. And I think a lot of people probably saw the first couple of episodes, saw that Tuco, you know, spoiler alert, Tuco's in the first two episodes. Ooh, and uh, the, the brothers too. The brothers are in it. They don't come till later. Okay. The cousins. So it's a universe. It's like a, the same lore. It's But the thing is, Better Call Saul takes time because it knows it can. It knows that you know, people are invested. People are in this world. And it sucks that some people dropped out in the early seasons because, I mean, from a practical perspective, and I used to think that this was a controversial thing to say, but anyone I know who's watching Better Call Saul will tell you in a heartbeat, Better Call Saul is a better show than Breaking Bad. And practically, that makes sense. It's the same team from Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, anyone who's watched Breaking Bad knows that that show really finds itself in the later seasons. So you have- The Gus Fring seasons. The Gus Fring seasons, or you know when Gus Fring inevitably leaves the show. Mm -hmm. um, That's when the show really starts to find itself, and that's when the team working on the show really start to master their craft. And then they mastered it, and then they left. They didn't stop being masters. They're starting a new show as masters. Yeah. And they know that they don't have to necessarily play by the same rules because of the goodwill that their huge, their hugely successful blockbuster TV show, which wasn't meant to be a blockbuster, but kind of did become a blockbuster. Uh, it, it's just, it's just, it's practical. Of course, it's going to be better because the, these people are these these people know what they're doing. Okay, so at the time of recording this, yesterday. Or two days ago, we got the news that Walt and Jesse are going to be showing up in this season. Absolutely. And this is one of the many reasons why Better Call Saul is so good. It took its time, and now it feels like you're being rewarded for your patience. It didn't start as this, you know, episode-to-episode cliffhanger. I have to see what happens next. I have to see what happens next. But because you spent the time, you did the work with these characters, now you get to have these big reveals like Walt and Jesse are coming to the show finally at last. It's like the the excitement is a reward for your patience. Is (laughs) that makes sense. I get it, but is is a part of you that's worried? Because there's got to be a case for just letting the original incarnations, how they were signed off, you know, in 2000 and... 14 or 13 or 12, sorry, just die. You know what I mean? It's like, we did this perfectly. Just let it, let sleeping dogs lie. Or are you like, no, bring them back? I would be worried if it wasn't Vince Gilligan and Peter Gold. 
But the, David Chase did uh, Many Saints of New York. Yes, and Vince Gilligan did El Camino. Is El Camino the weakest installment in the Breaking Bad mythology? 100%. Mm-hmm. That's a compliment. El Camino is a fucking awesome film. Oh, yeah? <laughs> it's a really, really good film. Some people might disagree. And like I said, it's more of a victory, it's more of a victory lap for Breaking Bad. Or a stain on the legacy. Not a stain on the legacy, because I get to, you know, once again, I hate to be, I, I don't want to spoil, but, you know, El Camino gives Jesse Pinkman a happy ending. And honestly, I'm happy with that. I wanted Jesse, after having to watch Jesse Pinkman be emotionally tortured oh. for six seasons of television, yeah. yeah, I want a happy ending. And my point is Vince Gilligan and Peter Gold don't do anything unless they've thought very, very carefully about it. So no, I'm not, I'm not worried about Walter and Jesse, I'm excited for them to come back. If it's disappointing, how hard is it going to hit you? I'm going to cry, <laughs> but I know, but I know they won't disappoint me because they haven't, they haven't done it yet. So, like, yeah, they could, they could. What if they just, what if Aaron Paul and Cranston are just like, we'll come back on the condition that we get three plugs for our tequila? I mean, I mean, you know what? Honestly, they've like, earned it. Let me grab a sip of this. Let me grab a sip of this mezcal. You know, mezcal. I, I, I would say fuck you guys, but also like you guys have given me some of the greatest television of all time. So you know what? You can have this L. I'll, I'll hand you this L on a silver platter because you deserve it. Uh, we might be getting a Gus Fring show. Cool. Yeah. Do we like that? Do we I, like is it is or at what point is the Breaking Bad universe rung dry? Like. At, you think in 10 years there's going to be a Tuco show? I, l- or you want to keep I, it going forever? Here's my thing. I mean, there's a part of me that thinks, hey, end on a high note. Leave after Better Call Saul. But there was a part of me that thought, end on a high note when they ended Breaking Bad. And if I had, if they had gone with that, I would have been deprived by of one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. It's Better Call Saul. They can go as long as they've got gas in the tank. And once they don't have gas in the tank, I don't even think they'll show us. I don't even think they will show us that they don't have gas in the tank because they'll just stop. And if they don't want to stop... Then carpe diem. Everybody has a price. <laughs> no, but Vince, like, Gil- wanna, yeah. Vince Gilligan was offered something like six million dollars to do three more episodes of Breaking Bad after it ended, and he said no. <laughs> so I, I, I think these are people with integrity, and I think they are only going to tell stories if they know there's a story to tell. Gotcha. I mean, okay. So speaking on the note of uh, bringing shows back, we got to talk about we own this city. Oh my god! <laughs> Which is like gone under the radar. Like, how come they're not pushing the shit out of this? It's on in like because eleven that's days. That's how David Simon rolls, baby. It's always under the radar. <laughs> it's always under the radar, and then and then people find it like five years later, and then they realize like, how did we miss out on this? Okay, so let me talk. Let me brief the audience on this. So it's a new crime thriller about police corruption set in Baltimore from the team of creators of The Wire. Yep, but it's not The Wire. But it's not the wire. <laughs> and it's not really connected to the universe, really. But it kind of is. I'm going to tell you why. Okay, so let me read to you the um, the press, what the, the Warner Press release uh, that they put out. Uh, we Own This City chronicles the rise and fall of the Baltimore Police Department's, Police Department's Gun Trace Task Force and the corruption and moral collapse that befell an American city in which the police, the policies of drug prohibition and mass arrests were championed at the expense of actual police work. Mm. In particular, the story follows Sergeant Wayne Jenkins, played by John Brenthal. Ho, ho, ho. The what le- a guy. The leader of a corrupt plainclothes police unit who goes rogue and begins hunting and robbing citizens and drug dealers alike. It's set in 2015 during the Black Lives Matter riots. It's a new era for these this team to be depicting. The homicide rate is peaking. The gun trace task force are decorated. They're boosted heroes, but they're actually stealing drugs and money. They are perhaps juking the stats, as our <laughs> man Prez Belusky would used to say. 
So it's created by David Simon, who obviously was the brain behind The Wire. Uh, it's also created by George Pelicanos, the lesser known man who produced the third season of The Wire. He wrote Slapstick, which is the famous Never On No Sunday Morning episode. <laughs> he also wrote Middle Ground, one of my all-time favorite Wire episodes. One of the greatest episodes of television It opens ever. with Brother Muzone and Omar's uh, 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 standoff, which is masterfully Kind of like wrote. this John Ford high noon standoff. Spaghetti Western, but... <laughs> on the wet, cold, wet streets of Baltimore. He also wrote the scene where Stringer meets Colvin in the cemetery, one of my mm. all-time favorite Wire scenes. He created The Deuce with David Simon. It's his right-hand man. Uh, Ed Burns is also involved, who was uh, also part of the brain trust that gave us The Wire. I, he's the real-life inspiration for Prez Belusky, um, coming off as a cop and then becoming a teacher. Uh, we Own the City is based off a book of the same name rather than first-hand experience of the creators like The Wire was. The book is barely a year old. It comes out in February. It came out February last year. The show's greenlit in May. They film it over the summer. They just pump it out. I've never mm. like, heard a turnaround that quick before. Uh, the author, Justin Fenton, like David Simon, worked for the Baltimore Sun. Fenton was a crime reporter where Simon worked for the city desk. Uh, there will be a total of six episodes in and out. Fenton was part of the team that were a finalist uh, for the Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of the Baltimore riots following the death of Freddie Gray, I believe, which is going to be discussed in this series. David Simon wrote the first episode. Its first three episodes are directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green, who's worked with such big names as Mark Wahlberg, John David Washington, and uh, the guy from King Richard. <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> It's a rare lead for John Brenthal, who is good in literally everything. Uh, we got Carolina from Succession. Uh, she's going to be playing the DA, it looks like, kind of filling in for Ronnie Perlman. Uh, a lot of the cast of The Wire is back. Jamie Hector, who plays Marlo, is yes. back. Antoine Glover, who plays Slim Charles, is back. The I didn't know that. The actor who plays O-Dog is back. Landsman is back. Poot, Poot is back. Herc is back. Dookie's back. Savino's back. Donut. Donut who Jack's car is and had his fingers broken. <laughs> He's back. Marla Daniels is back. Santino is back. Savino and Santino. Switch two letters. Um, I mean, that's kind of all we know about the show. Everything I pulled uh, is, is from the book and from the trailers and the press treatment. Um, I feel like with all this cast inclusion and David Simon and Ed Burns and George Pelicanos, I... Really hope this is going to be like a theoretical sixth season, sixth season, a spiritual sixth season, if you will, even though it's talking about a different era, it's a different set of characters. <sighs> that just seems like calling it not the wire season six is like an insurance policy, just in case <laughs> if it's like it fails or like, nope, the wire is still good. This was a different thing completely. I got to tell you, though, I will be very disappointed if it doesn't share the sprawl or the duality of the characters, the humor elements, the dose of reality. Is this just going to be another case of Many Saints of Newark? Or, or like, are we going to, I really, man, at the end, at the, this is like my favorite IP. It's The Wire. At, at the end of watching this, I really hope we're not just going to be like, fuck, just let a good thing die. Give us another season of The Deuce if you want to do something, David Simon. Jerry, where do you stand on this? So here's my thing. Uh, well, sidebar, everyone go watch The Deuce. It's fantastic. It's, okay. it's, it's such a great show. But here is my stance on We Own This City. 
The Wire faced some heat uh, in 2020 in the wake of George Floyd. What? How come? Really? Uh, It was criticized. I forget the publication that criticized it, but I remember Wendell Pierce responded. Who uh, Wendell Pierce plays uh, Bunk on uh, The Wire. Of course. Uh, But basically, The Wire was... It faced criticism for not being copaganda exactly, but basically not being as uh, critical on the police... In the police department of Baltimore as it should have been, which is bullshit. Uh, and Wendell Pierce rightfully responded that it was bullshit. Mm-hmm. The Wire was incredibly critical of the Baltimore Police Department and uh, the authorities who worked underneath that umbrella. However, there is a part of me that looks at this and it's almost like David Simon going, oh, you think that I can't be critical of the police department? I'll show you critical <laughs> how critical I can be of the police department. I'll show you police corruption. It's here. Here's my problem with that. I am a staunch defender of season five of The Wire, but I feel that a lot of people's criticisms of season five of The Wire is it hits a little bit too close to home for David Simon, uh, as he was also, as you uh, went over, uh, he was a former journalist. Yep. Uh, some people feel that season five is a little bit too angry, and because of how angry David Simon is, it kind of loses some of the nuance that earlier seasons of The Wire have. Mm. There is a part of me is... And this could be totally, you know, David Simon could hear this and be like, this guy's talking out of his ass. He has no idea what he's talking about. But my thing is, is there anger that is fueling this project? And if it is fueling its project, will it be for the better of the project or will it be to its detriment? That's, you know, just a take that I have personally and something that I'm a bit worried of. I'm uh, kind of shocked, <laughs> but but not really. I just feel like, and I don't want to get into the woke politics, but we got to be able to tell cop stories. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think a lot of cop stories do glorify the police. A hundred percent. I just don't think The Wire is one of them. No. I, I, like, like The Wire, I remember getting into an argument uh, when I did, uh, I did a year and a half of journalism at uh, Centennial College. And I remember getting into an argument with uh, someone who was very close to a police officer in their life. And she was also a huge fan of The Wire. Her politics were a little bit more conservative than mine. And we got into a huge argument as to whether or not The Wire displays police brutality. It does. She disagreed. It became a whole ethical conversation. But the fact that a show could spark that kind of ethical conversation shows you that the show is doing something right. Mm. And I just, I don't understand. I don't understand who would critique The Wire for it being too relaxed on how it criticizes the police department. The whole show is about systematic corruption on every level of the infrastructure. Uh, there there are good cops and there are bad cops, just like in the real world. There are officer walkers and... There are Kimas. <laughs> Absolutely. You know what I mean? And like, and, but also what the, sh- does, the show does very well is McNulty is a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. He is absolutely motivated by his ego. Uh, I by no means think that he is a bad cop. I've talked to people who think Bunk is a bad cop, whereas you know he mm-hmm. f- basically freed Omar <laughs> in, in one of the storylines of the show. Uh, I agree with freeing Omar personally, because uh, I think or- Omar is the moral compass of the wire. Uh, R.I.P. Michael K. Williams, what a great performer! But uh, this is why I said duality, because they will go to criminals and show that the, the, the show the saint and the sinner and the sinner and the saints, and that's kind of what the show is about. There's no 
it's not so much as sitting there and being like, he's bad, he's good. No, I think The Wire, I completely agree. I think The Wire is more so a case of these people are all broken, mm. and the reason that they're all broken, good, bad, somewhere in the middle, the reason that these people are broken is because the system is broken. Yeah, ultimately, it's about the system. It's about the system. And yeah, like how, how are you, yeah, how are, it, it is one of the most uh, robust uh, analysis of how a system becomes corrupt that I've ever seen on television. And I just, yeah, I don't understand that critique personally. So when it comes to the new show, do you think that <laughs> he's reacting to the discourse and if John Barenthal is anything but a total piece of shit, evil man, that he's going to get some shit for, he's going to he's gonna get some flack for that? I don't think that's what the show should be about. I think we need to continue this very complex two-sided look at every human being in this system yeah and i feel that john burfall's character i mean once like you know david simon hasn't been sleeping since he wrote the wire i think the deuce is one of the most unsung has some of the most unsung praises of i've seen for television in like the past 10 years i think the deuce is an incredible show and once again he understands people he understands systems i don't know why that would just kind of walk away with this with this show the only thing that i could ever that i could see clouding the show's narrative is david simon's anger and there might not be any anger there this is just my this is my own psychoanalysis i'm probably going overboard um but yeah i i, I don't foresee john burfall's character not being three-dimensional if that's something that uh, if that's what you're getting at totally and we won't know until we see it we won't know but i i and that's really soon but i want to know on the note of this being another wire season <laughs> when you watch the trailer and you hear the words Baltimore David Simon police drama but set in 2015 do your ears perk and do you go oh we basically we basically get six more episodes of The Wire uh, or are you setting yourself up for disappointment I don't Listen, I don't think we should look at it as a sixth season of The Wire I think we should look at it more as David Simon going home we should look at it more as what it means to David Simon as a writer as opposed to it being an extension of the Wire universe. It is always interesting when an artist starts somewhere, leaves, and then goes back. It's interesting in music, and it can be interesting in television. And that's what I'm more excited about. I'm not looking at it so much as, ooh, we're getting season six of The Wire. I'm looking at it more as like David Simon is going back to somewhere that he knows very, very well, and he has 15 years of experience under his belt. I'm very interested to see what he does with it. That's kind of how I, I view it. Mm. Yeah. I, I think I think another thing to consider is that The Wire is a five-season complete package. Absolutely. Every se every one hand, this season's hand washes the others, and by the time you get to season three, you understand the full picture of what's going on. This is six episodes. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's got a beginning, middle, and end story. And probably two sides of it. You're going to get the cops the kind of front office of the politicians and probably some of the criminal aspect. Of probably. It. You're not going to get the docs. You're not going to get the senators. You're not going to get the news office. You're not going to get the schools. We just don't have time for that. We don't have time for that. But he will make it as if, if any if his, if his work has taught us anything, he will make it as nuanced as he possibly can within that six episodes. I know uh, he's done this before too. If like, I think he's done, what was it called? Show Me a Hero with Oscar Isaac. Oh, yes. That's right. That's right. Set in the 70s. And I then believe. he did another one recently called The Plot Against America. So he know uh, Generation Kill is yep. considered one of the best miniseries of all time. Wow. He knows how to do a miniseries. Um, will it be as nuanced and layered as The Wire? Probably not. Because he just doesn't have that amount of time. But I'm sure it will be 
layered. I'm keeping my expectations as low as possible just to save myself from getting disappointed. <laughs> Probably smart. Probably smart. I think it'll be great. I'm 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 pumped for it personally. I, I I'm just excited to see what he does. So what's uh, we're gonna talk about needle drops, but before we do that, I just we have we have a couple minutes here to talk about Atlanta. I mean, yeah, I, I'm down if you want to talk have, about it. Have you been enjoying? I the have been. I have been. I I am a little bit curious to see where it goes, but I'm also trying not to uh, judge it too harshly until I until the narrative's complete because I find that you don't really know what Donald Glover and Stephen Glover and their team. Hero, and, Hero, Hero, Hero Marai. Can't forget Hero Marai. You don't really know what they're trying to say until you see the whole picture. It was the true. It was true with season one of the of Atlanta. It was even more true with season two of Atlanta. And you know, I'm giving it. I, I want to see the whole thing before I make any stark judgments. They have set it up really well because if this was 10, 12 years ago, and I saw that half the episodes didn't involve the main cast, I believe the first episode does not involve any of the main characters. It's a kind of a um, external story. Mm-hmm. And the last episode that came out, starring Justin Bartha. Yep also does not involve any of the main characters. It's just high-level storytelling, maybe thematically kind of aligning with everything that's going on in that show. 100%. Um, I probably wouldn't be happy with it. But now I'm kind of like, oh, what are they going to give me this week? Mm-hmm. Right? It's like an anthology. It's, be- it's become an anthology series. Yeah, it's like an anthology series without having to fully commit to being an anthology series because you know once you get to the end of you know what was like a, basically like an episode of Black Mirror last week. Uh, yeah. At the time of recording, we've seen four episodes of it. Yeah. Um, you know that you're always going to come back to Earn and Van and Darius and and uh, and Alfred. Uh, so it, it, it Paperboy. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it, it's weird. It's kind of like they kind of get to have their cake and eat it too, which is kind of how Atlanta's always <laughs> kind of gone about. But yeah, how are you feeling about this season? Uh, I I think it's nowhere near as good as two. Mm. <laughs> But I think it's you know what, and uh, do you mind if I? Yeah, please. Uh, I I think it's it it's hard to be as good as season two because I think season two is probably one of the most like probably like in the five most important seasons of television of the past ten but years. They've had time because that came out in twenty sixteen. But that's a problem because since they've had four years, season two of Atlanta changed television in a lot of ways, and now they're coming back and now people have when atlanta season two came out it was ahead of its time now people have caught up to it and it's kind of hard to how do you be game changing again when people have already caught up to the progression that you made with an episode like teddy perkins they're they're kind of in a rough spot i think and i think that they're doing pretty good within that i mean that first episode it was a bit gimmicky but it was pretty uh it was pretty crazy it was pretty it was a pretty crazy decision to wait four years and then suddenly be like yeah the first episode's not even gonna be about the main cast and you're gonna love it and i mean i loved it <laughs> i think i think most people loved it do you like donald glover as a person <laughs> <laughs> at, at, the, at, at the time of recording this, he last week released an uh, interview magazine article where he interviews himself. Yeah. Uh, and uh, made some bold statements in there. One of them being, Zendaya, I think it's time for Zendaya to leave Sam Levinson and come to death row. That was funny. <laughs> that was actually really funny. Is that a polite way of saying, Zendaya, you don't need to work with white a white guy anymore? Or death row being the quintessential black gangster label? 
I I I think I think it is Donald Glover saying Zendaya, uh, you know, the show has done what it needed for your career. Uh, it's time to do new things. <laughs> he he he. It's weird. He seemed to be kind of like back and forth on Euphoria when he was talking about it in that interview. He's, yeah, he referred to it as a chicken breast with foie gras on it. Immediate gratification. Well, you're a kitchen person. What do you feel? How did you interpret that when he said uh, that? I think the idea. I, I would like him to be interviewed by someone who can say, hey, what do you mean by that? Or, or mm, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And like center it in rather than him just kind of stroking his own back for a lot of it. Yeah, absolutely. I've been, uh, you know, I've, uh, this has been major water cooler conversation for uh, me and some of my coworkers. The uh, interview magazine uh, article. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I work in a movie theater and, and a lot of us had read that interview and, and we'd been talking about it. And I uh, had made the point that I think the best move that Donald Glover ever made for his career in the past five years is he shut the fuck up (laughs) and and he just let his art speak for him for him uh because anyone who you know followed donald glover in you know 2011 you know when camp comes out and he's on community and you know uh because the internet is a huge sensation uh we all know that donald glover glover has a penchant to say some pretty stupid shit uh and this interview is just—I mean, it, it, it just—it just shows you. I'm not going to get into the politics of some of the things that he said in the interview, but the point is, he says some pretty dumb shit in this interview. Well, we can talk about how he compared his sophomore album. Is it his second or third? Because uh, the internet would be his because second. The, I think that because the internet was his sophomore. sophomore album. He compared it to the OK Computer of rap. I mean, we got an OK Computer episode coming out in June, so we're going to be getting pretty deep into it. But when he was asked to explain why his album is the rap version of like one of the most important <laughs> like game changing milestones in not just alternative music but albums in general is he said that's prescient in tone <laughs> and subject matter and and it's extremely influential now of course he's interviewing himself so he couldn't smack himself in the face <laughs> um, and but, i think know, he i think he also says uh, they're not going to let me have that till i'm dead right <laughs> which he's aware that of how outlandish the statement is but you know OK Computer is so much more than just an album that's pressy in tone, subject matter, and influential. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was making, like, it, it, it came at a time when we all started to realize that work culture and, you know, being happy to go to your job and, and your job making you is kind of bullshit. And the world, like, most people thought the world was going to end in two years. Yeah, it just, it captures a certain certain tone. And listen, I'm not saying that, like, because the internet is even a bad album per se. Yeah, but sweatpants, <laughs> three thousand and five. These are great songs. It's not. These it's are not li- the rap game. Okay, computer. No, it's 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 not. It's not. It's not even Donald Glover's best record, frankly. No. Um, it, it, his it, last one was had more similarities to the themes of Okay, computer. Three fifteen uh, twenty. Uh, yeah, that makes sense actually. Yeah, yeah that's a, that's it felt a pr- more like that. It, no, that's a pretty good. That's a pretty good comparison, actually. And I, I just, I just feel, you know, Donald Glover is talking, is talking his shit. And sometimes his shit makes sense to me. Like when he goes and says that Atlanta's like The Sopranos, I kind of get what I, I kind of get what he means. He, he says, said, he said, uh, okay, so he said nobody but The Sopranos is touching us. Nobody but The Sopranos is touching us, which very respectful of The Sopranos. <laughs> maybe not respectful to any other show, <laughs> but very respectful of The Sopranos. I can at least see him saying that and being like, okay, he's kind of talking out of his ass, but yeah, I can see some connections there. I can see some uh, connective fabric, some connective tissue between The Sopranos in Atlanta him talking about because the internet it's like 
One of my biggest problems with because of the internet is it's kind of, and I even, like, listen, I list, because of the internet, you have to keep in mind, this album does have a very special place in my heart. It introduced me to rap music. Mm. It, it was the first hip-hop album that I had ever downloaded and listened to from beginning to end, and it opened my mind to a new genre of music. So I have a lot of respect for that album. At the same time, one of my biggest problems with it, and I even had those problems when I was, like, 15 listening to this record, it's kind of fake deep. It kind of thinks that it's making, like, really, really, like, like, important outlandish statements and like it, it feels that it's more progressive than it actually is and mm. i just uh <laughs> i just don't think it's the landmark that donald glover thinks it is the rap game oak computer there is no way that it's not to pimp a butterfly yeah a hundred percent or my beautiful dark twisted fantasy one of those two i guess that would make good kid mad city the bends yeah, I guess. Mm, yeah, I like guess about so. About youth, just strong songs, a collection. Or maybe of music. good. Or maybe good kid man said he's okay. Computer, or maybe to Pippa Butterfly's kid A. Ooh. Maybe like, but but here's my here's my point. Like, there's so many. Like, you know, I'm a staunch defender of. I, I don't want to say a defender. I don't think anyone is like, you know, going out of their way to shit on Igor by Tyler the Creator. I think we're all in agreement that that's a pretty great record. But there are just so many like amazing rap records that you could make the OK Computer or the Kid A or the Pink Floyd comparison to. I don't really think because the internet is in that conversation no, personally. it's silly. It's a silly statement. It's really <laughs> silly. It's really silly, especially when you have the masterpiece Awaken My Love under your belt. That's an amazing record. Not a rap record, though. Not a rap record. Yeah. Not a rap Not record. Not a rap record. Um, okay, why don't we uh, take a quick break, and then we'll get back. We'll talk about music and shows. All right, let's do it. All right, cool. All right, let's talk needle drops. Uh, just use of uh, pop music in all of these shows. Um, so, to me, this is a really important part of watching TV or any movie, anything. <laughs> Honestly, um, all these shows are using like their their massive budgets that that are going up uh, to license famous songs. To usually, it's to these days convey a contemporary era or. Um, use it for effect. Sometimes they have new music commissioned. Um, this is nothing new. Kind of starts with Miami Vice, right? That's when it really, that's when kind of using pop music and TV really kind of starts. Very good. Yes. Yeah. I would say I, it probably, maybe we can draw a thorough line to even before. Um, but HBO, I think, are like the pioneer of this. They are connected to some big record labels since they're owned by Time Warner. Um, David Chase would like cut episodes of The Sopranos while listening to the music and kind of like, he, it, it was, the music was his favorite part of editing Sopranos episodes, figuring out where to put the song. And it was, it, it shows because it totally, yeah, it's a completely a pioneer move. Sopranos has it. I think a lot of shows from that era, but like they, um, I mean, I guess we could talk about it now. I feel like Entourage did a really good job of this. Entourage did do a good job. I felt it was a little bit more showy with Entourage. I I'm felt- cool with that because that, that was the kind of show it was. And I think because it was running contemporary with the rise of the iTunes store um, that uh, this became a really great part of watching the show. Like I remember the edit, the ending credit song was almost like, ooh, that's a good one. And like that really fit. I think the pilot ended matter. I think the pilot ended with Lucifer by Jay-Z. And yeah, it was just like, Lucifer. whoa, what a, what a way to end the episode. I remember E-Pro by Beck being in there. Yep. I remember tale, like they would do Rock Tales of Brave Ulysses and Fire by Jimi Hendrix. They did Eminence Front by The that's Who in the first one episode. On the red carpet. Yes, and it's amazing. They do great with it. At True Blood had really great music too. Mm-hmm. It's like set the scene really well. I think, like I think Southern Swamp. I think my only problem with Entourage and the reason I go for The Sopranos a little bit 
more with with the Sopranos. It always felt like it was uh, enhancing the narrative. It always felt like they were it would the music was thematically connected to what was going on in the show. Where Entourage, it was like, hey, don't you want to hear Eminence Trump by the Who on a TV show? Well, now you can. Ah, it's just, it's, they're doing different things. They're doing different things. But I think I think you know the Entourage is the music tries to make you feel like you're at a party. True and. By God, do I ever feel like I'm at a party? When I even put the there's a Spotify playlist of all the songs, you get to shuffle that. It's so eclectic and it's so good. And when they're in a party and there's a song playing, be it you know, by Cameron or Jay Z, mm-hmm. uh, I go fuck, man. We're listening to that this weekend. It, it doesn't. That's what it's supposed to. It's the television equivalent of how it feels when you read the first party scene in The Great Gatsby, and you just get totally <laughs> less like like you you get visceral washed over visceral visceral. Yeah. Um, okay. So I that was I mean like aside from the obvious example, which we're going to discuss shortly, um, selecting music artfully feels like it used to be a bigger deal. And it was more thought out back then. And, mm-hmm. and and it sort of just feels like a simple requirement now that all these big streamers can afford the rights to well-known songs. So they just make sure the songs are well-known instead of well-fitting. That's the thing. You can, as, as much as it feels like it's not as special, you can always tell when they're doing it right or when they're doing it wrong. Or just doing it for the sake of doing it. Which, in my opinion, is doing, doing it, it wrong. wrong. Um, I, like, maybe this is an industry... Uh, a a benefactor, bene, you know, not benefactor, but the opposite. And it's, it's like a, it's it's something bad that's come out of the industry, changing from selling CDs because you know you would go and buy the Soprano soundtrack back then. Now the only one who's um, the only entity that's benefiting from this is Spotify. Yeah, basically, your stream. You just spend more time on Spotify listening to a song that you hear in a show that you really like. Maybe indirectly, artists are getting streaming bumps, and maybe someone else will use their song and they'll get royalties. Or if they're touring, you might sell more tickets. I, can doubt it um but uh, i feel like most like let's be real here that most people just don't care enough to place it high on their list of reasons to watch something is that you know you're sitting there and maybe having a, a like most people not us <laughs> uh maybe a decent amount of people listen to the show but just your average joe who's watching television you know having a recognizable song that is good enough just makes them go, oh, that's a sick song. It ripples out, though, because, you know, and, and we saw it with Euphoria. Every time a sick needle drop happened on Euphoria, you can bet that all the TikTokers had a new sound that they were using that week. Oh, <laughs> Euphoria is an example of a show that does it really well. Um, I there's I was Dancing in a Lesbian Bar by Jonathan Richmond. Such a great song. Not the Modern Lovers. Uh, not the Modern Lovers. Uh, I think it was like the sixth the sixth most popular John the Richmond song, and when the episode that uses it dropped at Elliot's house, it shot up to number one by far. Which I, I had actually spent the previous summer listening to that record, like front to back. Like I, Jonathan, has become one of my favorite records. So hearing it on Euphoria, like it was just the perfect time to hear it on a show. They do, they do that a few times. I, I, okay, so I look at something like Pam and Tommy. Okay, which was a good show, not a great show. Probably would have been a better book. Nobody reads anymore. Definitely could have been a better two-hour movie. Right, three hours, mm-hmm. two parts. Okay, uh, we've already talked about how shows are just going to milk everything to make sure that you're spending eight hours on this plot. Hey, oh yes. So it's an eight-hour saga. The sex tape isn't even that long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, n- nothing in that show made me go, "Oh shit, that's a sick use of that song." And it's set in the '90s, <laughs> where mm-hmm. it, I should have been doing that a lot. Seth Rogen's behind that. He's got a great taste in music. The, <laughs> some of the songs they're using in it. Moving on up by Primal Scream, 
Closer by Nine Inch Nails, Love Fool by Cardigans, Praise You by Fat Boy Slim. So just like a, a, a smorgasbord of 90s. And just like the most obvious 90s songs, like... Like Sneaky D's did the playlist. Yeah, like some restaurant. These, those, you could hear those in the shopping mall or the restaurant. Um, do you think that it's a missed opportunity? Because we just discussed how Entourage and True Blood and Sopranos uh, were so good at using their music. And that was such a big part of those shows. Sitting there and just being like, holy moly, they did a good job with that. I, I do think it's a missed opportunity. And uh, for more reasons than just what we're discussing, I also feel like great TV, uh, it can help you discover a lot of great music. Mm. Uh, the Breaking Bad soundtrack is just one of the greatest soundtracks on a TV show of all time. Really? And, yeah. Well, Breaking Bad's the reason I discovered TV on the radio. Oh, I hadn't there? I hadn't heard Dear Science before I heard DLZ. DLZ's in it. A DLZ's in yeah. it in a pretty pivotal scene. Um, yeah, I think it can be quite a symbiotic relationship sometimes. Uh, you can discover your new favorite band if a show uses a song just the right way. Uh, so yeah, I, I do think it's a missed opportunity for sure. Most people don't care. I don't think they do. I think most people are sitting there watching most of these shows, Pam and Tommy, for example, and they hear Closer. Or they hear Third Eye Blind and they just go, <laughs> hey, good song. And then they just you know, they just move on from it. And like the people who are in charge of the show have a million things going on. So it's almost just like, just get whatever. Yeah. It needs to be recognizable. It needs to be from the 90s. Do average people like the song rather than selecting something that really fits the mood, really fits the scene identity? They just go, it's got to be from the 90s. Just mm-hmm. make, you feel like you're, it's, make it feel like it's a 90s feel. It doesn't feel like it's premeditated at all. Like it, there's no thought put behind it. it yeah. And like... I, when I watch Pam and Tommy, I'm like, why aren't you playing more hair metal for mm-hmm. irony? Yeah. Right? Why why aren't we playing there's no hip hop in it? Right? Mm-hmm. It's it's you're pulling from one of the most great eclectic eras of music and you're going with fucking praise you, right? Which is like, okay, I don't need to hear praise you again. We all know <laughs> praise you. Um makes me think the so going to film. Scorsese does not pick obvious needle drops. No, he doesn't. <laughs> no, he he doesn't. They become obvious needle drops because after he uses Scorsese them. uses them a thousand percent, like Tarantino as well. Yeah, and and they just seem to have two rules. They go number one, it's got to be cool. Absolutely, you just make just, just just make it look cool, make it sound cool, make the song cool. Goodfellas, it, it, he's mixing, um, you know girl groups from the 50s with Harry Nilsson's jumping yep. to the fire and like you're sitting there and you're just like holy shit this is great Scor- like, you know like when he, when Scorsese pairs the Mean Streets pool hall fight with Please Mr. Postman <laughs> right it's so, such a dichot such a juxtaposition or or Tarantino using Girl You'll Be a Woman Soon and having Uma Thurman dance to it in John Travolta's jacket in his coat while he's reconsidering this entire the consequences of a situation upstairs it's just so perfect and there's this dramatic irony of the fact especially if if you've watched the film a few times it's kind of the fact of like oh she's about to have some consequences of her own that she hasn't even realized it's perfect and like the first thing you hear is that guitar go or she her, she puts the tape in and it clips and it goes girl you'll be a woman soon and she's dancing um it's just so liberating how she yep. dances um but, you know, anybody, Wes Anderson is another one. Yep. It, it, it feels like those are great chefs who are surprising you with unexpected flavor combinations. Absolutely. And Euphoria does that really well. So well. Right? The same kind of, the same kind of vein. Um, as far as the other shows, it's fucking fast food. 
I was just gonna say. <laughs> yeah, I was like just gonna food. say. It's like going to McDonald's. It's like going to McDonald's. Like, yep, this junior chicken tastes real fucking good. Uh, I know it's gonna taste good. You're not really surprising me of anything, right. and it's and and you left you you're left feeling kind of empty. It was good in the moment, but now I have a stomach ache. After. I have a stomach ache. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. It should. I mean, it should always be like that. And HBO are the king of it. Who are doing? Who are still doing it very very well? Yep. Um, I feel like the way to go now is to use a score. Or, uh, you know, use so much pop music like Euphoria does, more needle drops in a scene mm-hmm. than some shows have in their entire season. Uh, look at Succession. Yeah. Right? All the pop music is diegetic. Absolutely. Right? Uh, but it's mainly score. And they are, they had Nicholas Bertel. He created an incredible theme for the, to the show, and they're not afraid to use it. It just feels so evil when those strings come in and that piano. Oh, they like, play the shit out of that score. That's it. That's all I have, right? <laughs> um, Succession is doing a good job with their music. Would you agree? Uh, absolutely. I mean, particularly with its use of uh, Rate Me by Nirvana in season oh three. God. Amazing, amazing use of a pop song. I uh, liked that, but I loved Kendall's birthday party. Oh my god! All bangers all the time, yes, baby. Yes, it felt like uh, a douchey forty-five-year-old guy. Yeah, you're hearing like <laughs> LCD sound system. one. It's like <laughs> hip hop that was cool in clubs ten years ago. It's like, yeah, play this one. That <laughs> it, is, he, Kendall, by the way, loves LCD sound system. He loves because he's dancing. He's running the North North American scum on the train right before he Logan's gets, he gets about Logan to betray him. Yeah, sacked. yeah. Uh, and that's that makes total sense. He's like, "Yo, have you heard this band?" <laughs> he he definitely gives uh, vibes of I'm a 45 year old dad. I read Pitchfork, and that makes me the coolest person in the world. I still read Pitchfork. I still read Pitchfork. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Condé Nast takeover didn't bother me. Oh yeah, he's just like, "Yo, they got bought. It's great." <laughs> Probably owns Condé Nast. Uh, so before we talk about, I want to talk about the best needle drops and the worst needle drops that have been coming out sort of since the beginning of the year because there's some good ones, there's some bad ones. Yep. But just, I want to ask you, what song do you think of when you think of The Sopranos and you can't say Got Yourself a Gun? Yeah, okay, all right. I think of Living on the Fin Line by The Kinks used in University. Uh, the, at the end when they're, the, 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 the dancers come it's, out. It's it's played at the... This is, uh, uh, this is the episode uh, for Sopranos fans. This is the episode that tells the story of Tracy the Stripper. Yes, the shortest Sopranos episode. Is it the shortest episode? It is. F- I think it is forty-eight minutes. Okay, it's well, just a tight, enclosed, singular story. It's one of the best. Uh, it's a classic. It's a classic episode of The Sopranos, and yeah, yeah it uses living on a thin line to by, bookend to bookend, yeah. and that is a perfect example of using a band that everyone knows, but not picking the obvious choice. Because who the hell knew living on the thin line before The Sopranos? Not many people. At least mm. not, not many people from my generation. I'd argue not many people from your generation. Mm. Now we all know that song. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's, it's perfect, perfect use of music in a TV show. Do you know what mine is? What's yours? It's, uh, when Don't credit- say Don't Stop Believing. Oh, yeah. Oh, thank God. I would say that's the other one you can't say. Yeah, 100%. I know you weren't going to say it. I just uh, wanted to. It. <laughs> it's good, though. I might have. But... I do not know what the song is called, but I, the question, not my favorite, but it's the one I think of when I think of The Sopranos. I think of Chris high on heroin <laughs> looking in the mirror at his own pupils and it goes, rock and roll, Kentucky Fried Flow. <laughs> you know, right? No, of course, of course. It's, what is that? You don't know, but it works. That's the yes. point, right? You Get don't it, even know. Kentucky Fried Flow. No one, no one in the history of forever. <laughs> 
puts on that episode of The Sopranos and expects Christopher Moltisanti looking at himself in the mirror while he's strung out of his mind on heroin while rock and roll Kentucky Fried <laughs> Flow is playing in the back and you never win it but it's perfect what about it's- Smoke on the Water Smoke when, on the I think, I think he's, he's listening to it in the yeah. car and he goes, eh, 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 and he's hitting the radio. He get, does he get an accident? Uh, uh, he does get an, it, I think it's a dream sequence. It's a dream I sequence. I think it's a dream sequence. But uh, actually, so I was uh, showing my partner it, and uh, Smoke on the Water is actually famously used in Better Call Saul as well. And oh, me wow. and my partner are both huge Better Call Saul fans. And she turned to me, and she was like, wow, Better Call Saul really just kind of ripped off the Sopranos with this, didn't they? Because um, right. it's, it's used in a similar fashion in Better Call Saul, is all I'll say. Uh, okay, so let's talk needle drops. Um, so any time a show uses music really well that's been out so far this year, um, what's yours? What, what do you think was the best one? So my choice, and it once again, it is a song that I didn't know beforehand, uh, wouldn't even have thought about it. Uh, it is from the episode Defiant Jazz, episode seven of the first season of Severance. Uh, Ooh, Severance. Severance, yes. We haven't talked about Severance Which, yet. For, by the way, Severance is so far, I'm sure this is going to change, but so far Severance is my favorite show of 2021. Wow. Or 2022, There's I mean. A huge slate of TV coming out, so it might change, but just for, I, not a lot of people are, so keen. Not a lot of people are watching Severance. The people that are watching Severance do not shut up about it. Well, I, so, you know, okay, here's the crazy thing about Severance, Aaron. Okay, Norm, you know me. I'm pretty effusive when it comes to television. What do you mean by that? Uh, I, I am very, you know, this is the best thing ever. This is, this is, I, I'm, this is crazy. I'm yeah. always calling things the best thing yeah. ever. I got to the end of Severance season one. I watched the season finale. I think it came out uh, last weekend. That's right. I watched it. I loved it. I thought it was great. There are people on Reddit who are saying it is the greatest Grace. episode of, of television. There so. are people saying that, and there are people saying that it is one of the greatest season finales of television of all time. And yeah. I'm looking at Twitter, and I'm like, okay, I don't disagree, but I thought I would be the one saying this shit. Not everyone else. And yeah. we're all in agreement on this one? Okay, cool. Oh, you you do think it's that good. I don't know yet. I want to sit with it a little bit before mm. I say something that outlandish. It's a great fucking 40 minutes of television. It's a tight 40 minutes. Apparently, Ben Stiller modeled it off of the structure of an episode of 24. Wow. Um, in the way that oh, he, so it's high octane. High octane and in real time. Okay, so before we continue, yes. just because I'm telling you, not a lot of people are watching it, and the people who are are talking about it all the time. So yes. that means that it's going to be the new thing, I think, pretty soon. Probably. Um, Apple TV is the only thing that's stopping people because I don't think a lot of people have that. Um, but tell us what Severance is about, please. Okay. Severance follows uh, the character of Mark Scout, played brilliantly by Adam Scott from Parks and Rec, uh, Big Love Little Lies, Step Brothers. Good Place. Yeah, Step, Step Brothers. Yeah. You, you know, big, big comedic actor. Uh, he's doing a dramatic role in this TV show. It's set in an alternate reality. It's not quite dystopian, but it has kind of a dystopian vibe to it where this company, Lumen which we don't really know what Lumen does. They're a pharmaceutical company, and that's all we really know about Lumen. But they have initiated this program where surgery is done on their workers where when they come into work, they forget completely about their outside life. And when they leave work, they completely forget about their life inside the workplace. So what you basically have is this total separation between someone's work life and their personal life. That's how work should be. <laughs> well, that's one Hang of the... your shit up at the door, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that's one of the interesting moral dilemmas that is presented by the show. Mm. Uh, and Mark Scout is someone who basically has on undergone this procedure. He's done it to basically uh, 
deal with the grief of losing his wife, which is all I'll say about the show. The show is part mystery box a la Lost. Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. Well, more so like, you know, a continuous narrative. It's not anthology. Not anthology. But it is like Black Mirror. The vibe. I, I would say it's more like a show like Lost or Mr. Robot where it's like very much hinging on the mystery, hinging on the Ooh. the plot theories, the, the people on Reddit boards kind of going, oh, what's going on? What's going to happen? Oh, predicting what's going to happen next. So it's part that. It's part of mystery. It's also part this very philosophical allegory for how capitalism basically crushes your soul. Uh, it's fascinating. It's interesting how you kind of get like eight characters for the price of four because you're kind of you're dealt with you have four main characters in uh adam scott john Turturro. yeah oh, wow he's uh, in it uh a newbie uh, mark uh, uh, zach cherry zach cherry zach cherry's I in love it love him um and I, I am forgetting the actress who plays Hallie, which sucks because she's like arguably the best character in the show we will look it up we will look it up but, go but, on. but my point being is you know you get them in the work life you don't see a lot of them outside of their work life but you get kind of a different character when they're in their personal life mm. and it's very it's just it's it's fascinating thought provoking television and it's also like you you got to see what happens next because it's always ending on a cliffhanger you always want to figure out what's next so there are stakes there are high stakes high stakes and uh apparently ben stiller and uh the lead creator dan erickson they know where it's going they have a they have about a three season arc planned apparently so ben stiller hey He is amazing. He directs six out of the nine episodes, and it is absolute, like, it's a revelation, honestly. Like, he is so good as a director. Charlie Kaufman-esque? Very Charlie Kaufman-esque. Being John Malkovich, act one, kind of like... 100%. A lot of people are, like, saying it's like if you mix, like, Charlie Kaufman's kind of, like, high-concept, like, brain-bending ideas with, like, a 70s paranoia thriller. This isn't my idea. This isn't what I... This isn't what I've said. A lot of people have been saying this. What's your flavor combination on that? Uh... That makes sense. Um, I would, but what would you? What would you say? That it's this meets this. It kind of feels like if you turned Office Space into a thriller. <laughs> that's wow. what. It, that's what it feels like. It feels like if you turned Office Space into this high octane thriller. That's what Severance is. It in seems my opinion. The, like the Apple TV Plus shows have the Apple budget. They have like oh, they're like oh yeah. Well, we that's how. The well, you can just get like Christopher Walken's in the show, and he's like a side character. No way. Yeah. He's an important character, but he's kind of off doing his own thing. Christopher Walken's in Christopher it. Christopher Walken. And John Turturro. Patricia Ar- John Turturro's Patricia, the main Pat- character. Patricia Arquette. Patricia, Patricia Arquette is the wow. main Look at uh, antagonist. Amazing cast. Uh, but then also you have new actors, like the actress who plays Heli, uh, the actor who I do remember his name, I believe is Travis Tremel. He plays Mr. Milchick, mm. who is the most terrifying character I've seen on television no, this year. Really? M- more terrifying than Nate Jacobs, Aaron. <laughs> I, I, I assure you. Uh, he, is, he is absolutely frightening uh and he's a total i can't wait to see what he does next i believe his name is travis tremel um he's wow. actually in my featured in my needle drop scene uh but, which we'll get to soon we, we are talking about that oh well, uh, well, well what should i talk about should i talk about the needle drop scene now so yes yes thank you uh, um just just on that note so you think that sev- this that this show has probably the best music, uh, the best use of music you've seen on TV this year. Yes, it has. It's the you, the song is called "Shaky Jake" by Joe McPhee. It mm. is a jazz song. It comes in at around the third act of this season. It okay. it really it's a really it's a major turning point. And at the end, hmm? it's like near the end. Near the end, we're and, starting to wind up here. Yes, it it it's kind of the uh, yeah the moment that really propels you into the climax. And basically, Mr. Melchek, who is kind of this antagonistic uh, 
overseer who watches over uh, these severed individuals who are working for Lumen. He basically comes in and says that we're going to have a dance party. We're going to have five minutes of dancing. Uh, Helly, pick the song. And she picks Defiant Jazz. And Mr. Malchek dances to this song around the scene, around the office. And it sets, <laughs> it evokes a strong reaction from the main cast is what I will say. It, it evokes a very, very strong reaction. And the reason I love this scene, one, I had never heard the song before, but it mm. worked perfectly on the scene. Yeah. And it works so well thematically because dance is meant to be a liberating act. It's meant to be this thing that frees your body from everything. It's meant to be totally instinctual, primal. And this oppressive figure is trying to use dance to control our main characters. And they can't take it. They can't take it. They can't sit through the bullshit of it. And I just think it's it's an amazing moment. It's actually, it reminds me, have you ever seen Ex Machina? Of course. Okay. It reminds me of, uh, I'm gonna tear up this fucking dance floor, dude. Oscar when Oscar Isaac. Isaac starts dancing with Kyoka, the android. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it reminds me very much of that scene with the lighting and just the nature of it, of how this, like, you know, like how, the, how dance is meant to be this, like, freeing, fun thing. And it's fucking terrifying when you're watching Oscar Isaac do it. That and song's called Get Down Saturday Night. I was actually listening to it on the way over. It's awesome. Uh, it's, it's an amazing song. But yeah, it's very, it's, it reminds me of that scene a little bit. So good pick, good choice. I, I mean, I'm, Severance is on my list. <laughs> you have to watch it. Uh, I, have, I think I will. Um, but okay, so my and it does have a great season finale, <laughs> like a very, very well done season. Apparently finale. incredible. Um, okay, so so my pick is Drink Before the War. Good I, choice, Sinead O'Connor for best. Okay, um, so we've talked about Euphoria at length, having probably I would say front runner, front runner for best music on TV. Yeah, I would say so. The, the, both score and soundtrack. There you go. It does both. It does both very, very well. And like, I'll, like substantially, substantially. But drink. Before- By the way, when is Labyrinth gonna drop the OST? Like, I really want to hear this shit. I want to hear this shit. Come on, let's <sighs> go. They, those guys work on fucking sabbatical time. Oh, <laughs> like, anyway, sorry. Don't mean to cut you off. No problem. Um, I think that there's so much music going on in that show all the time. Drink before the war, however, gets a big showcase. And it's like mm-hmm. this, 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 this scene is almost about the song. Absolutely. Um, so, oh man. I think the night that episode air, we both described it as very Lynchian. Okay, so let me explain what's happening. I, I, most people have seen the show, hopefully, that, watch, that listen to this podcast. Cal Jacobs is revisiting the bar that him and his old lover, uh, a man by the name of Tyler, mm-hmm. uh, had visited as youths. He's playing music off of the same jukebox. You think he's going to play in excess. <laughs> of course you do. And the scene is going to go a different way. Uh, and he does. No, he doesn't. He, he does. That's earlier in the episode. He uh, Earlier in the season, even, he plays Never Tear Us Apart. Yes. A classic. Um, but he plays a Sinead O'Connor song. And meanwhile, Cassie Howard, played by Sydney Sweeney, is at a house party. And she is drinking herself into oblivion. And I don't like the song, as far as I'm concerned, not on the party playlist. No. If that song was at, on a party playlist in my house, people would go, Excuse me, <laughs> like play that, play something else, please. And meanwhile, it's a very sad song. And meanwhile, Rue's also singing in the back of. No, she's not. She's not? She's not. She's not. Mm-hmm. Just, it's just those two. Okay. And it, go, and it goes between those two. But you would confuse those because the stories 
what the song does is bring those stories together and kind of make you have this radical empathy for Cal and reconsider the sort of tragedy that Sidney Sweeney's character is going through. I know you've mentioned that dance is supposed to be liberating, but this song and the way they're dancing is not. It's almost like they're trapped within their yep. own sadness. Um, I do not think that song is very good. I'll be honest with you. I think Drink Before the War and by Sinead O'Connor, if I haven't mentioned before, it's a weird song. It sounds like it's coming off a Casio keyboard. There's no bass. It's a great showcase for her very unique vocal. Great singer. But by the end of that scene, it is a great song. Yeah. It's it's almost like they have elevated the song. And I, you'd be very hard-pressed to listen to that song now and not think of that sequence. Um, I think that's what great music on TV is supposed to do. That's the power of filmmaking, and that's the power of television. It can take a song like Don't Stop Believing and The Sopranos, yeah. which I hated before The Sopranos. <laughs> and it makes sense now. And it makes sense. And recontextualizes it. And it's almost like the, the, the weirdness of that recording and how it's missing bass. It now becomes part of this dreamland that is going on in this television show. Um, yeah, I... I, I Still, I like that's the one that I saw that I continue to think about. Or if that song ever goes on, I was like, "Wow, they really use that song very well." Um, well, and thematically, it just makes so. Once again, it connects to the themes of that episode and that season. It's it's it uses yeah. alcohol as yeah. this connective uh, idea and and uh, it's this tissue, it, if you it, will. this connective tissue yeah. between Cal. Cassie and Rue, who are all drinking for very different reasons, but yep. it's, they're all going through turmoil, and it's they're all it's it's they're all facing a calm before the storm, and the storm is coming, and it comes in very very harshly for all three of these characters. Call it puke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, okay, what's your worst? What was the worst? What do you think the worst use of music is? Okay. It was on Minx, and I'm not going to hold it against Minx because it was also on Euphoria. It uses the song "Dirty Work." By Steely Dan. Of course. I am so fucking sick of hearing dirty work by Steely Dan to thematically articulate illicit behavior. I saw it in American Hustle a few years back. I was going to say, it's also, in, it opens well, the movie. It's dude. used very well in American Hustle. It's used very well in American Hustle, but it feels like ever since it was used in American Hustle, it's suddenly like, oh, okay, we're doing we're doing some dangerous illicit oh, yeah. behavior. We got to do dirty work by, uh, by fucking uh, Steely Dan. Where is it in Euphoria? It's used. I think, oh, they're they're the drug house raid. <laughs> it's right after. It's right after. Right after the brilliant use of right by the line by, oh, Jerry by Jeff Rafferty. Rafferty. Yeah, brilliant use. Yeah. I, I almost picked that song for my best use of oh, music. Oh wow! Um, but then it's. I just. I hate. This is a. It feels lazy. It just feels like you're repeating. It just feels like you're repeating yourself. I mean, Sam Levinson knows that dirty work was used so iconically in American Hustle. Why are you going to use it? It feels like dirty work is kind of entering Gimme Shelter territory. Hey, don't say anything bad about Gimme Shelter. I love Gimme Shelter. I <laughs> love Scorsese has never used it poorly either. No, Scorsese has never used it poorly. I know a bunch of other directors who have though. <laughs> really? Yeah, I, I, it's been used. Oh, I think it was, I think recently, I was, me and my dad were watching that awful, awful John Gotti film with John Travolta. It's in there? I think it is. It, wow. If it's not there, it's been used elsewhere. I think it's just Scorsese. I would just, that is Scorsese's property now. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's the thing. And also, like, okay, it presents this interesting question, mm -hmm. which is like, 
you know, when is it okay to use a song that a previous filmmaker has used? Mm-hmm. Recently, Donald Glover in the most recent episode of Atlanta used uh, La Fleurs by Minnie Riperton, which was very famous, uh, which was very yeah. uh, iconically used at the end of Us by Jordan Peele. It That's make, right. It makes sense. It makes complete sense in that scene. I think, I, I just think it kind of boils down to this instinctual thing. You can kind of tell the difference between this song makes sense for this moment, so fuck it if Scorsese used it, I'm going to use it too. Or when the music supervisor just kind of goes, okay, well, you know, I mean, uh, we need a song here. Uh, I mean, you know, Dirty Work by Steely Dan, that would work, right? Like, it, it just it's half-assed. It's half-assed. It's you know half-assed. What? My big problem with the use of Dirty Work and everything is that it's not even the 20th best Steely Dan song. And, yeah. And it's not sung by Donald Fagan either. It's just sung by, I think it's what they had, the guitarist was singing it. It doesn't sound, doesn't have that weird cartoony character like, voice that Donald Fagan brings. It's not jazzy, like the great Steely Dan music is. And I mean, just as a Steely Dan fan, when you see that in the movie, I'm like, something else. Get use peg, something of Petzl Logic. Like, use De- like- De- Deacon, Law- Deacon Blues. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Or even, I'm even happy to see Reeling in the Years used in a movie. Right. <laughs> you know okay. what I mean? But like, but, but, uh, yeah. It's, um, one of the greatest bands, a band that is, trending now because everyone is trying to get that steely dan jazzy yacht rock sound and dirty work is not the best of it it's almost like use something else you know what i mean uh okay my worst is all of the pearl jam songs (laughs) used in super pump do you know how much i i I knew you were gonna i knew you were gonna say this but do you know how much like when we were talking about like fast food and music i was like yeah like the way that fucking super pump uses pearl jam music like i i wanted to say it so much but i didn't want to take away your punchline know it thank you and you know you okay so super pumped is i think it's awesome ah i think it's uh fun Mm-hmm. And it's a show about the rise and fall of Uber, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Kyle Chandler. Um, there are things that I like about it. There are things I don't like about it. What do I like about it? it the pacing. It is so goddamn fast. It is well-paced. It, that first episode could have been three. Yep. And they like the way that the plotline moves about telling the story and introducing Travis Kalanick as the CEO of Uber. It moves and it does not stop moving. I think the acting is very, very good. I think the introduction of Uma Thurman, who we have not seen in something major in years, mm-hmm. does great work as Ariana Huffington. There's um, Hank Azaria comes in for one episode as Tim Cook. Um, it's also just this fabulous story. I know it's pulling from Wolf of Wall Street and Social Network and kind of combining the two, carbonating it, and shaking the bottle A little up. bit of that uh, Danny Boyle, Steve Jobs film as well, for sure. Yeah. Uh, basically, you know, I, people, are call, people are calling that all these scammer and founder shows Wikipedia shows. A little bit. Because it's like, oh, we got to the end of the Wikipedia article. Next link. Yep. <laughs> you know? Um, but I, I had a lot of fun with Super Pumped. I, I enjoyed the kind of panache that came with it. Uh, Levinson and Koppelman, who did Rounders and Billions, uh, definitely put their spin on it. Apparently, there's going to be another season that follows the story of Facebook, probably through the congressional drama. Uh, but what I don't like about it is the spontaneity of the referencing. Now, n- the number one <laughs> would be Quentin Tarantino narrating it, which makes... Odd choice. It's just nonsensical. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like... Ooh, it's Tarantino. And like my smile is just kind of fading now after like five episodes. Like, why? Like, what purpose does this serve? Nothing. He has not no connection to tech. I read about it, and it's because he likes billions. Cool. cool. Like that, thanks. He likes he likes billions. I, I'm sure a lot of people do. He just 
I don't know. I, I honestly, this is the for problem those who don't know. Brian Koppelman, who wrote Super Pumped, is also the creator of Billions. Exactly, yeah. and, and and David Levine as well as his partner. Who yes, also super, who also did Billions. Um, the other aspect of the show that feels random is that they feature a lot of Pearl Jam's music, <laughs> <laughs> and Pearl, Pearl Jam famously do not license out their songs for shows or movies. You never see they for the longest time they didn't have music videos. They were against Ticketmaster. Uh, didn't sell their uh, their uh, concert attend uh, their concert tickets through Live Nation. They were doing concerts in fields. There is an anti corporate irony to the inclusion of that music, but they my God they are really hitting you over the head with it. I'm talking Yellow Lead Better, Even Flow, Better Man, Spin 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 the Black Circle. That one's in there. Alive is in there. Fucking like, hate Spin the Black Circle. The, the, uh-huh. mo- the most obvious Pearl Jam songs are being used to the point where I think I'm watching a Pearl Jam musical. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of what we were saying before. It's the ultimate uh, tick a box. Music supervisor, hey, just get a bunch of Pearl Jam songs. Just play Spin the Black Circle, man. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. No, you're right. It's totally. It, 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 I, I completely agree. It, it, and I think that was... I think the use of spin the black circle was actually, I think they used that in episode two during uh, like when they're trying to take over New York and they have that montage that's like yeah. based off of like a video game. It was Fred Armisen. And it was, it was around that point. Yeah. Fred Armisen is in that, uh, in that episode. Um, and it was at that point where I was like, you're really just kind of using Pearl Jam just because you can, like, there's really no like thematic purpose to this aside mm. from the fact that, Oh, well, uh, Ubers have tires and tires kind of look like black circles. So spin the black circle, baby. Like it, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's just, it just one dimensional, one dimensional, very one dimensional. Did you stop watching Super Pump? You watch a bit of it? I stopped it around episode three. Uh, I watched episode three, and it wasn't necessarily a bad episode of television, but I think I did get very much sick of, like, how hip it was trying to be, how kind of cool and, like, you know, we can make references to The Master uh, by Paul Thomas Anderson because no one references The Master. Uh, yeah, let's was make that a- in there? What? Oh, the, his L- girlfriend mentions it. About, like, Lancaster Dodd yes, or something yeah. like that. Weird. And it's just, like... I like a good pop culture reference in my dialogue. Succession's very, very good at yeah, using pop culture references. They're flinging it out. They're flinging, but it feels natural. Yeah. There's something about, and it, it works with the pacing of Succession. There's something about when I get to the end of a, a super pumped episode and like I'm hearing the 20th pop culture reference uh, that's just being like thrown for. It just comes across as unnatural. And it kind of started to really highlight a lot of my problems with the show. A lot of the show felt a bit unnatural to me. Mm. A lot of the show didn't, it, it felt a bit performative in a way. Um, and I just got kind of, I, I kind of felt like I, I felt like I had kind of figured the show out. And that's a problem. That's a problem when I'm on my, the third episode of a show and I feel like I figured it out. Um, if that makes sense. Are all the scammer shows like that? I mean, like, there's more. There's The Dropout. There's We Crash. There's Inventing Anna, which has to be the worst of them. I, I haven't seen... I've only seen an episode of Inventing Anna, and I was sick of it after this. <laughs> I, I was sick of, which, 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 as far as we go. Which fucking sucks, because I, I love Julia Garner. I yeah. think Julia Garner is, like, one of the greatest talents we have right now as an actress. Um, but off of one show. Off of a couple shows. Mm. Um, people. She started on The Americans. Oh, she's in there. She's amazing in the Americans. Okay. She takes a, a, a role that could have kind of been one note and brings it to six different places. It's She's great. doing amazing things with Ozark. Amazing things on Ozark. One of the best performances on TV with Ozark. Yeah. Uh, she was also very great in a film called The Assistant, which is basically a horror film about Harvey Weinstein. It's brilliant. 
It's so good. Please go watch The Assistant if you haven't seen it. Right. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just it, it. She wasn't really doing much for me on inventing Anna. Uh, the dropout's quite good actually. I've just fallen out of the dropout just because I have so much to watch. Yeah, uh, they're using music. I maybe out of all the scammer shows, they have the best case for using music well. They use it very well. Um, uh, I, and I think you agree with me. The use of Back to Black by Amy Winehouse. That's very, the best of it. Very and well used. Kind of winking at us by era and also you know she's got a black turtleneck on 100 <laughs> percent, and, and and the screen cuts to black very nicely i think at least they're doing something i think those few the first few episodes of the dropout are using a lot of indie music there's why control there's passion pit there's yes Air. absolutely and uh feist they used one two, one, two three, three four, four to do the apple commercial and after that they and you haven't seen the rest of it but they switched to pop music they're kind of showing you how she's become corporatized. Yes. And she's losing this kind of this kind of natural indie edge. Uh, at least they're doing something with it. But well, yeah. and let's look at the, like like a, like the use of Back to Black. Look at what, what that whole album is about toxic relationships and changing yourself mm. for somebody else. And, yeah. and to and, and Sunny Balwan is right there. And a hundred or just the corporate culture at large. Yeah. That she's kind of feeling like she has to like change her voice so she can fit inside this kind of like masculine dominated culture. Yeah. Uh, they did a great job of that. It's just well just well used. It's just well used music. That is the best of them. I don't think anybody. <laughs> I don't think anybody else is not super pumped. But surely, yeah, it's kind of what we were saying with. Uh, I think we should cut it there. We went a little over time, but hopefully you guys enjoyed it. We'll timestamp it. And it's a medley. We had a lot to talk about. Yeah, I think you know we talk about uh, the hours we plug in watching television. Uh, nothing compared. What we just did is nothing compared to the hours you're going to spend doing that. And hopefully you walk away watching some, finding some good shows to watch and using this as a guide to get you through the streaming era. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks for an episode with sports fiend Ian Pickett. We're going to be talking about sports, we're talking about basketball, talking about winning time just because you didn't get enough television today. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Throw some more in there. Uh, Jared, you want to add anything? Nah, I'm good, man. I'm okay, good. Let's, uh, good let's to talk to you. It. Let's cut it there. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Check out smackmedia.ca. Mm-hmm.